Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I am Vlad, and my guest today is the Hungarian Bitcoiner Karo Zagoras, who is a member of the very burgeoning and rather expanding and interesting movement of Bitcoin plebs who are establishing groups on Telegram and trying to basically talk Bitcoin matters as individuals who have educated themselves and have reached a level where they no longer require to follow big figures and influencers. And to me, it's very interesting that we get to do podcasts with people who are rather unknown within the larger community, but are part of a niche, which in itself is trying to find its own identity and establish itself as a force within the larger Bitcoin community. So hello, Caro. Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. How's it going? It's going fine. Quite, quite a hot weather in Hungary, but it's going okay. Yeah. I heard that you're doing a master's in social sciences and it's interesting with these Bitcoin plebs that I'm also part of that we're not quite plebs. All of us are pretty educated individuals who have a lot of interesting stuff to say. So do you work on anything related to Bitcoin in regards to your research? Well, basically what I'm doing is I'm examining how institutions are breaching our trust and how this is basically accelerating Bitcoin's adoption process. I'm just looking at you know, like how how uh, like banks are you know abusing people's uh, money that they're producing like you know the wealth they're creating and then how they're you know kind of misusing that uh, the deposit for that from banks for example like and how that kind of destabilizes people's trust towards banks. That's actually a good topic to research. But what is the scale of it, or what kind of sources or examples do you provide? Uh, basically, I read a couple of books that I've been really into. Like, for example, the first one I read was uh, was examining how Francis Fukuyama, in his book called Trust, was was describing how trust is formed, how how you know uh, the the culture that you know that we're born into in in, in countries and places, kind of you know like how it kind of derives the way we trust things. Like, in like uh, like. Uh, for some of the Asian countries, how uh, it's harder to get out and get out out of the family uh, structures of trust and start bringing other people into into your trust circles. For example, like with companies, and he was basically looking into these things, like how you know they can create prosperity throughout you know big larger corporations, and then the family is not enough to keep companies running. And it was kind of interesting for me. That kind of gave me the the basis for understanding trust, how it kind of functions. And then, you know, I started venturing into the more the banking world with, with uh, Lisa Servan's book called Down Banking America. It was quite an interesting take on like how uh, basically America's lower middle class is being pushed out of the banking system, how they're becoming more unbanked or underbanked. And like how this whole system becomes much more uh, inaccessible for them. Uh, and and more, it's kind of shocking for me that more than 180, 128 million people in America are basically financially struggling. And then even half of them don't even have access to normal uh, financial services. And they kind of forced to use check cashing services like right check or payday lenders, for example. That's interesting, knowing that we are speaking of the most developed country in the world, which also yeah. sets the standard to the rest of the world. 
Yeah, like uh, it's it's quite stunning that that America is supposed to be land of the free and the most advanced country and powerful country on earth, but but when you look at like how they are clearing uh, their checks, for example, in banks, it takes like four days to clear a check. But for example, in in Europe, uh, payments usually arrive within a day or so, or two or two three days. It's usually, much more sooner in the SEPA zone, but. But it just it's just quite stunning for me that, that that the system they're using is just so bucked down. It kind of appears to me like that, you know, the lobby that, that banks have and all kind of organizations that are out there are basically keeping the system uh, as uh, you know f- f- full of friction. Then you know uh, you know removing these kind of frictions. And then you know there comes in the, the companies that that Lisa Servon kind of talks about. I kind of think she was bamboozled at some point because she kind of went to talk about a company that I really hate. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should say its name, but they also uh, uh, in the blockchain space. They, they are the third biggest cryptocurrency out there, which I would say a really big shitcoin. And she just totally failed to understand the, the underlying problem here because uh, in the end of her book, she never really talk, thinks about cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin. And this is interesting because uh, she was out there to you know, figure out what is the problem and how it can be solved. Instead, she, she just resorted back to the old system that we have and looked for like alternative companies, alternative financial institutions that could provide like a better service like Venmo or, or I don't know what else was, she was talking about. It was interesting for me. She totally missed the point of the entire thing and she didn't even consider it, which I found really shocking in her book. Could you say again who this is about? Because I'm not sure if the signal is bad or I wasn't paying enough attention, but I didn't catch uh, the name okay. of the person. It's, it's Lisa Servan. It's S-E-R-V-O-N. Okay. The Unbanking America, How the New Middle Class Survives. So you read her book? Yeah. You found the entire points of disagreement? Well, quite some disagreements. I, I don't really think that she was approaching it from the right way, mostly probably because she was stuck in the old world that I kind of consider most people are stuck in, especially the educated people who don't really believe in Bitcoin and other kind of things, you know? And then and then afterwards, uh, Saifat and Musa's, uh, the Bitcoin standard kind of, you know, totally changed the, the theory of my thesis that I was working on. Because, you know, in the beginning, I kind of thought that the trust was somehow was being eroded naturally. That from the 80s, something had happened and it was accelerated by the 2008 financial crisis. But it, it wasn't like that. It, it started much more earlier with the Keynesian economics. It kind of, you know, changed how society functions. It raised people's uh, time preference up high. And then, you know, how governments are using aggregated spending to, you know, raise the GDP level and things like that. And it just originated from Keynesian stuff. And this kind of, you know, is now, you know, the consequence of that system that we, we have right now. And, and it's interesting that even today, there we are still being taught about these Keynesian economics right now. It's just shocking for me, at least. Well, there is a lot of people who trust the system and don't see any point of changing it. And they will reply to any criticism in the lines of, we are working on it and it can be better and whatever, that they're going to point out that they have done something which worked. And they will say, oh, we have taken many nations out of poverty with this system of relentless and never-ending loans that countries take. 
without ever knowing so wrong. how they will be paying back. And along the lines of what you said, you reminded me of what Nick Sabo has written. And he is a first-generation American whose father was Hungarian. So I guess yeah, I know, <laughs> you have a lot in common with him. But he wrote very interesting research papers on social scalability and how trust propagates along societies. Uh, I didn't manage to read any of his work right now. I was planning to read Shelling Out as after the next book I'm reading because I have to read the Max Weber's uh, book called, uh, what was it? I think it was the uh, something, the spirit of... Uh, Capitalism. capitalism and, yeah, the, Protestant work and the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. But I wasn't really sure how I could tie this to the whole thing because I was told after the trend, basically the thesis was transformed that I should read more about you know, sociology. But uh, I just wasn't really sure about it. I'm probably going to read it because there, there's probably something going on in religion too. But uh, I, I don't much, I'm not sure about it right now. I'm not aware of any books that Nick Savo might have written, but he has that very well-documented blog of his where he, yeah. he has a very long post about social scalability and it relates to human biology and the way our brains work. And the fact that since we have evolved as a species, our brains have remained the same and maybe that we are capable of caring about 50 people at a time. But at the same time, our societies have evolved into city states. Much more larger. And metropolis. And it's hard for us to actually be engaged and care about everybody when we are part of these societies. And that's why he proposes technology as a way of reducing the amount of trust and enabling us to have better solutions to govern ourselves. He has some very interesting ideas, which I guess most, most are original, mostly thanks to his expertise in smart contracts and cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I mean, Savo's work is really, really fascinating. I do think that most of the things he says are really, really great. But uh, also we have to think about it's like, you know, like, like how we can, you know, bridge trust because we can see that like uh, in the modern world, especially after that went to the internet, you know, trust become, have to become much more, you know, like, how do I say, uh, not decentralized, but more like we have to bridge, bridge it because, you know, uh, we can see it like, like how our trust is being eroded. And, you know, when our trust is being eroded, it's really impossible to you know, rebuild it again. Because uh, like, for example, if, if we start distrusting politicians, for example, then it's going to be much more harder to choose another one another party. We have to go through a different kind of process there to, you know, to choose somebody, somebody different. And it's just kind of different. And this is where the smart contracting starts coming in what, what Savo was talking about. It. We could, you know, start putting uh, laws or regulations on the blockchain that are much more, you know, uh, transparent or understandable. And it's easier to, you know, to, like, how, how do I say that? Like, uh, when there's uh, litigation going on or something, for example, we could, you know, do something about it which I do agree with. It's just quite an interesting thought there. Most people was arguing against him though, but I think this is a really interesting point he said. Right. So how and why did it get into Bitcoin? Well, basically, uh, 
around 2016, got into Bitcoin through one of my friends who gave me a little bit and I kind of spent it <laughs> because the price was kind of crashing at that time. And afterwards, I kind of, you know, forgot about it because, you know, I, I kind of didn't really care about it. I first time at Bitcoin around in 2011 when I heard about it. I thought about it at home and I kind of examined it. Well, I think it was in 2010. I don't quite remember. I think it's the 2011, yeah. And, and then I didn't really care about it. I kind of thought it was a Ponzi scheme and everything else. Even during 2016, I was like, you know, thinking on these terms. But then it, it kind of, you know, started uh, changing uh, more into the ways like, let's say, investing into things, trying to, you know, make money. In, especially in 2017, and that's when I, I you know, got into the got into the shitcoin that I said earlier, and I kind of, you know, made a little bit of money on it. And after the price started crashing, I, you know, started thinking about this whole thing, what these things are and how they work. And this is how, you know, like how I kind of naturally developed this thinking about, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, like how they kind of function, what they do, what they achieve, and why they exist. And that's how basically I kind of arrived at the point, the sad point that, that everything I did so far was just, you know, just interacting with scam coins or all kinds of bullshit. And basically just doesn't really work the way I wanted it to work. And that's why I realized that, that there's, there's nothing else beyond Bitcoin that actually makes sense or, or has any point to its existence. And then I started looking at other things like what kind of a culture Bitcoin created, the anthropological uh, proof of existence is, is quite stunning. You can see all the art, music, pictures, memes, everything on the internet. Uh, you can see things like uh, the changes it brings into society, the the like how it, it dramatically lowered my time preference, for example. Like, that's just crazy. I used to spend a lot more money than than before. <laughs> it's like, I mean, than right now, I mean. It's also interesting. And it and just kind of like, you know, keeps reconfirming the, the theory that, that, that this is the only system that actually makes sense. And this is the only system, basically. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the only system, but it's a very good solution to counter the current economic and political forces that we are dealing with in this world. And I was having this conversation earlier with Raj, a guy from India whom I've interviewed. And he, I've basically asked him, how do we distinguish Bitcoin from a cult? And even though I had an idea in my mind, which I was ready to present, he said, no, we're, we are a cult. I'm fine with the idea. We are a bona fide cult, which has all the elements and I don't see why there's anything wrong with it. And I was partially surprised by the answer as, at least we in the West have a different understanding of what cults are, but he also had an educated explanation on why we are a cult and why it's important for us to propagate some ideological perspectives in order to make Bitcoin scale and why each of us is incentivized to talk about Bitcoin to everybody around them in order to spread adoption. What, yeah, what's your this take is on sociologist? Uh, I think there is probably some cult behavior here, but, but you know you need to like you know look at some other underlying things too. Like for example, ever since the end of World War II, we had more than sixty years of 
60 years of peace right now. And, and you know, this is basically because of, you know, how humans were able to reach consensus. And, you know, this kind of reflects thoughts in Bitcoin that, that people finally were able to, you know, find consensus in value. It's like value basically transformed for them. And, and, and even, you know, through technology, and now it, it is able to have a constant value. Not that you're producing money in, in, some, in some work or job, and then you're earning, like, let's say, like 3,000 euros, and then the European Central Bank basically inflates the money, and then a couple of years later, you only have, like, 2,800 or even less. And, and this is interesting, because uh, the whole thing that Bitcoin keeps, I mean, the whole, uh, you know, the kind of gives the inherent value for Bitcoin is basically the, the social consensus behind it, that people agree on it, that it is a form of money, that the free market decided on it. And, and basically, this is a really beautiful thing. And, and you know, this here comes in the cult, the, the cult aspect, basically. They're not really a cult aspect, more like, you know, like, like a defense mechanism, you know, but this kind of can be you know, more attributed to toxic maximalism, basically. That, you know, people really care about Bitcoin because they see that, that what kind of a, a promising future it can bring. And people kind of, you know, start defending its value proposition and start to, um, defending it from outside attackers who try to impede on its value or its or its uh, or its technology, like you can see, like uh, how the the no two X or UASF uh, uh, movements kind of played down, and basically that kind of nutshell basically tells like how good the space is, and 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 just really great. So, what is the Bitcoin scene like in Hungary? I know that we come from neighboring countries, but honestly, I think I've only been to Hungary a couple of times and it was only Budapest and I was not into Bitcoin at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's quite an interesting story. Uh, I managed to get into a Hungarian uh, crypto trader group, which was, I think, was the only one that was operation, but I'm not really sure about it. I was banned in a couple of minutes after that. <laughs> Because, you know, we're just talking about Bitcoin and like how these shit coins are, you know, being propagated in the group. And they didn't really like it. But I know a couple of guys who also live nearby. They are also more into Ether. And that's, that's quite a problem and, and a kind of a pattern that I see here that uh, the Hungarians always try to look for something better. And they never really uh, content with, with the new things that, you know, kind of make sense for them. And like, they always want to improve on things. They, they don't really find useful for them and that's how you know somehow i kind of thinking that the more that more hungarians are using ether right now than probably bitcoin because they're not really understanding the whole aspect of it or you're just trying to you know make money through speculation and it's kind of sad i never really managed to get out of the past to see you know bitcoin spaces because i don't really like networking or talking instead of talking with hungarians is just quite alien for me, the, the whole culture here. <laughs> so I didn't really get out of my bubble here for quite a long time. But let's say that I come to Hungary one day and I have no money and I have to survive only with some Bitcoins. Will I be able to buy stuff or convince people to accept Bitcoin? Uh, you will be able to buy electronical stuff. I know that. Uh, and there's a company called, uh, I don't really want to plug this, but there is a major electronics company in Hungary that accepts Bitcoin, but they're using BitPay, so that's quite a downer. But beyond that, I don't really think you could, be, you could buy uh, food with it. I don't really know any places where you can buy. I know there are some jewelers here that accept it. 
I'm not really sure you would survive, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's not that advanced here. I read an article in Bitcoin magazine about a year ago or something. Do you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. What was it with Bitcoin magazine? Uh, I, I got a message on my screen which said that my connection is unstable. Do you still hear me? Uh, okay, I'm here. Okay. So there was an article in Bitcoin magazine which I read. And it was about a guy who tried to survive for a whole week only on Bitcoin in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was or a barely it, next no, it, it was also. like a valley, actually. Yeah, I think I've seen the Berlin version. I think there was a German guy. From, I, don't, I think it was from, from CDF. Or, CDF or, or I saw the other one also, so it's quite interesting that they did. But the conclusion from 2018 with this article about the guy trying to survive with Bitcoin in Silicon Valley was that the adoption for Bitcoin has actually decreased in terms of merchant acceptance. And it was more likely for people to accept Ether or some kind of shitcoin which the shops were believing in than Bitcoin. Just because at the time there was this whole scaling debate or post-debate after the scaling debate. And there was this idea that Bitcoin should not be used as money. And it's more of a store of value and it doesn't scale and it has high fees and whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the whole thing, the, the drama with fees, like how it kind of started and how still Roger Ver, the scammer, is still uh, talking always about, you know, high fees in Bitcoin. But I don't see that high fees in Bitcoin. I can always send, you know, uh, uh, just like two set per byte or one set per byte transactions and they confirm in a couple of days. So it's like, I don't have to hurry with it. But I don't understand their, their problems though, because for example, if I accept Bitcoin, for example, in a store and I use a, a service provider, usually those service providers will demand a mining fee higher than, you know, you cannot basically set it manually. And then, you know, the, it kind of raises the total amount you're paying and it kind of makes it much more harder for for, for somebody who owns Bitcoin to, you know, to buy it because then they're going to start thinking about it. Do I really need this product? Because it costs way too much. I have to pay this extra fee and doing things. And then, you know, the, the costs the costs are quite shady for me also because I don't really see behind the base uh, uh, process how they are, you know, uh, changing the, the basically the received amount into, into fiat currency. It's something that I want to also look into, but it's just interesting. And Basically, why they started transitioning to other currencies because they have better fee structure, probably, or because they confirm much more sooner. But it just they just substituting uh, a really bad coin for a good. I mean, I mean, a really good coin with a really bad coin. What I would say, and it just doesn't really work like that. I think in the meantime, there has been some kind of institutional awakening, and people have figured out what it is that makes Bitcoin special, except for what they used to quote as the first mover's advantage? Uh, ooh, that's interesting. Uh, not really sure about that. But I do think that there's probably like an institutional uh, conspiracy here that I'm thinking, you know, like we're trying to, you know, enforce changes on Bitcoin. Like, for example, you know, with the fees. I'm not sure if you ever thought about this before. Like, when people are sending transactions, they're they are forced to, you know, pay higher fees because, because the application kind of uh, suggests them to do 
that transaction with that amount of fees and then they end up paying it anyway. So, but the thing with, with industry, I mean, institutional adoption, I, I don't really see that much. I see that, that, uh, that eBay is, is slowly accepting Bitcoin and other currencies. I see that the Microsoft, you can pay for, for services there on their side, for Azure or something. Uh, not, not that much else, basically. Well, in the United States, there's a lot of buzz about it. I'm not sure what it's like in Hungary right now. If there's a lot of anything, <laughs> there's nothing. Uh, other than 220volt.hungary, 200, I, I only consider it the, mo the major exchange, I mean, the major electronics retail that accepts Bitcoin. Other than that, not, nothing really, basically. Do you have any kind of law in place which makes uh, you pay that, taxes or? No, that's a really interesting topic that I've been really looking into. Uh, basically, we don't have any. And this is interesting why. Uh, I have a theory that, that it's possible that, that members of the Hungarian government are already deep in cryptocurrencies where they're trying to, you know, embezzle funds into and kind of like, you know, use it as a safe haven and like a tax haven for them. And for that reason, they're basically, uh, what they're doing is they're not introducing in any, any kind of tax rules for that and any kind of regulation for the space because it would kind of impede on their ability to, you know, to, to, to siphon out uh, Hungarian foreign into other currencies, for example. And, and this would be quite problematic for them because then they would have to report these to the to the national tax office, and then you know people would be able to see their 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 amount of cryptocurrencies that they own on their public tax records, and I think this wouldn't really work for them basically. So that's why I'm thinking that they're they're also doing this. And the other thing is that they don't really want to you know tell people that that they should be using these. There were of course people talking on national television about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but but these were usually not in prime time when you know most people would just watch it once they stay in periods when retirees are usually watching these <laughs> these events on television basically. So it it's not really making much too too much buzz about it, basically. I think I thought about what you said a few times in terms of politicians being involved into Bitcoin. And I remember back in January 2018, when the governor of the Romanian Central Bank made a statement about the price of Bitcoin. And the wording that he chose at the time was that Bitcoin has returned to more rational value. <laughs> This guy must have been watching the price for quite some time. And he didn't call it a Ponzi. He didn't try to deter people from investing. He just said, just be careful and pay attention and only invest as much as you can lose, which is something any YouTuber can say. And, yeah, yeah. and to me, it was surprising that I was expecting this leader of the institution, which basically issues the national currency of Romania to say, stay away from this. It's, a, it's bad. It's a Ponzi. It's whatever whatever people say to preserve the system, but he was pretty balanced. And to me, it was a big surprise. <clears throat> it made me think, okay, this guy must know much more and must be involved in it somehow. Oh uh, yeah, just something I forgot to tell you, like here in Hungary, we actually have a 35.4% tax rate 
wait, or 34.5% tax rate in total for, for cryptocurrencies. So if you make any kind of transaction, basically, you need to pay that amount of tax on it. So I, what I consider really big deterrent. But this is also interesting about central banks, for example, like the Israeli finance, finance minister also uh, were saying that, that Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme, that it's a scam. And other countries' financial ministers, I mean, they, they might say something different, probably because they were involved in it. I kind of think they are and they are like, you know, trying to figure it out how to, you know, keep things working because I have a fear about it that in a couple of years from the government's going to start realizing that, that they, they can either uh, kind of improve how they are, kind of improve their operation. Like, you know, like, like either by taxation or by you know, reducing uh, the total amount of uh, taxes they need to, uh, you know, set out on citizens or well, let's say like, or they're gonna start being afraid of the new system that they're gonna see that their power is slowly starting to you know, evaporate. And then that's when they're gonna start, you know, really be afraid. Like, you know, the, like in India, for example, like with the thing, they're giving out 10 year prison sentences now, or are they just planning to do it for cryptocurrency ownership? Just quite crazy. You know, you just made me think of something. So if you pay 30 something percent for, Bitcoin purchases that you make at that electronic store, how do they know that it was you who paid for it? So let's say that I have my Bitcoins and I want to buy you a television and I send it to your house and you're going to end up paying extra tax for it, right? You're right. So how it works here is that I went to the tax office to ask about it. And they said that, that as long as no Hungarian foreign enters Hungary or Hungarian bank or a, or a bank account that is tied to a Hungarian person's name that reports to the Hungarian tax office, the, the, the national tax office won't be able to, tax, to impose tax on that person. Because, for example, when you pay with cryptocurrencies, for example, at a company, you're basically uh, not creating, a, you know, a, like a form of tax, uh, like some sort of evidence for the tax office that you basically paid, but somehow the, the company just makes money. And companies don't need to, you know, report the name of buyers. That's, that's, that's one thing that, that, you know, doesn't really happen. You know, like when you go into a store, uh, when you buy something at the counter, you know, they use a system that's already wired into the national tax office. The tax office gets the tax already added to its record. And then, you know, that doesn't have a name added to it. So don't really know who is doing it. They only see it for, you know, record keeping things for, you know, like for, for like, you know, warranties or, or let's say uh, for shipping purposes. So, but I don't really know if they, they actually transfer that information, but I highly doubt they do because that would really, you know, uh, buck down the entire taxation system in Hungary. That's what I'm kind of expecting here. So what is the reason behind your belief in Bitcoin? Do you think that it solves any problems in your life or do you identify it as a solution for the long term for any of the problems in your country? Well, basically, it solves everything. Every problem that I have. It that sounds, sounds like a cult. It, it, it does sound like it. But, you know, you kind of have to be in a given situation to understand it. For example, I have a lecturer, for example, whose uh, uh, husband is, 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 is member of the government. And recently they had a 
had an increase in wages. So they, like, they basically gave them a 100% increase and they're making quite all the money. And, and she told me that she doesn't see any reason for using Bitcoin. And that's when I kind of started thinking that, that the, her bubble didn't burst yet. Because, you know, if I would have her bubble as my bubble that bursted long ago, then I would still be comfortable using fiat currencies. And it's just a matter of time for her to feel bad or, or to get into a situation that, you know, kind of makes her want to, you know, uh, let's say buy Bitcoin. And this is interesting because, you know, for example, uh, Jan Potochka had to be also in a given situation in, in the Czech Republic during the communism uh, to create the type of philosophical thought that he was doing. Because, you know, if he wouldn't be in that given situation that he was in, he wouldn't have had the fertile uh, uh, ground for, you know, growing these ideas and then, you know, uh, creating you know, the best philosophical thought of its time. Like, of course, there are other philosophers also like uh, that really, really glorious, but, but he was really interesting because he, he was talking about something also like, like, you know, like how new technology is able to enforce new political ideology. And this kind of, you know, uh, grabbed me, which was really interesting because uh, if you take a look at, for example, with Bitcoin, you can see that, that this, this whole thing basically fits into the perspective of, 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 of libertarianism. So, so that was basically the primary user group who started using it and then started growing into much more broader uh, other groups, basically like leftists, rightists, whatever else. And, and this was the problem that they had in the fact that, that, that libertarianism didn't have the fertile ground to, to grow their political ideology. But, you know, with the advent of the internet and Bitcoin, basically now they have, they, they are able to, you know, fulfill their, their, their political ideology. They're able to have complete uh, financial freedom for individuals through the use of Bitcoin. And this is really, really revolutionary. And, and even here in Hungary, I mean, how terrible the situation is, it kind of gave me time to, you know, think about the whole situation and like, you know, look for alternatives. And then, you know, kind of Bitcoin popped up for me as something out of this whole mess here. And it just kind of, I, I just, it was like a really bad drug that I got on it once and I, and I can't get off of it anymore. It's, it's something that, you know, kind of makes me think every day. It's just, just something that just you're not able to stop thinking about, that it, it changes everything that you see around you and so dramatically that other people around you don't even see it, but you know about it. And you know that, that, that you are probably at a much more advantaged position than other people and you want to just want to tell them about it, to let them know it too, because you want to share the prosperity probably or some other reasons. But this is really interesting for me that it, it just changes everything and permanently. I'm not sure if it is going to be good, the transition that we're going to have, but, but the end goal that we have and the new system that we're going to have is just much better than the one we have right now. Well, that's also something which I thought about a lot of times. I agree that Bitcoin is great, but how does it work at a greater scale in terms not of transaction output, but adoption to the extent that nation states use it? So would, would we be having a better financial system if we only had Bitcoins? And would we as a society agree that it's better to move money around and give money to charities and avoid 
individual greed in the sense that you're going to have hoarders who never move their coins and then you're going to have the rest of society transacting with only a few satoshis yeah i understand the problem here with greed i mean it is inherent greed that drives adoption primarily people have an inherent i mean we all have an inherent greed i also had an inherent greed when i got into that shit coin and and then it kind of got transformed as more as I started learning about it. And I realized that the, the thing that I got into is much more deeper than I thought. And the rabbit hole just keeps going down in science ways. So it's just crazy. And, <clears throat> and this is what the uh, uh, Moose talked about in his book, that, uh, that basically uh, sound money, or I think it was Mises or, 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 or Hayek, I'm not really sure uh, who was that, but uh, one of them said that, that you know, uh, if you have uh, a sound money and and any amount of of, uh, of that thing basically able to upkeep uh, 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 an economy, what they basically meant here is that if we have 21 million bitcoins, or even if we lose 4 million bitcoins, and 5 million bitcoins, and 6 million bitcoins, we still have enough amount of bitcoin in order to run uh, the entire planet's uh, uh, economy. That's because, you know, it's kind of made me thinking because you know, it's like, I mean, one Bitcoin can be broken down into, into 100, 100, 100 billion. Bitcoin. I mean, that's what I'm... Uh, 100 yeah. million. 100 million, yeah, sorry. And, and, and basically, uh, that, that's the whole point of it, that, you know, you can break it down to the smallest fraction. And basically, uh, the new layer technologies that are coming in right now can basically improve on it, like, you know, like with, with the Lightning Network. Because uh, even now we are basically sending uh, money almost free for a fraction of a satoshi. So it basically means that, that if we you know start having really big issues with the with the value, new systems. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that, that you know I'm gonna eliminate the chance for any new system to come in because you know uh, we can always have total consensus on something more important if, if something actually works that people agree on and then the and then the overwhelming majority would agree on it. And I say that get accepted and, and impose changes on Bitcoin because it's an open open source software. But even though if it cannot be changed and, and it, it is really rigid in order to you know keep its its functionalities as it is right now, new technologies you know could could get built onto it that are permissionless like the Lightning Network could try developing into that you know would kind of you know allow people to break down the value also even even lower. So then that basically allows people to you know have the smallest amount available if you are just buying something that's like a, like a bread or something far away lands or something which is quite interesting so this kind of allows people to you know just use one monetary system this is why you know it kind of becomes pointless to buy ether or any other shit coin basically usually i think my defense of shit coins is that they attract newbies and in the instances when they don't give Bitcoin a bad name and make the wrong impression of what it is, they actually educate in terms of how to use a wallet and how to make one transaction and what happens if you lose your keys. And this happens without affecting what's going on with Bitcoin. And by the time they wake up and realize, hey, there's a major player in this field and it's called Bitcoin, not this other shitcoin that I was into, they are more prepared to not lose their keys and to secure their keys and also to use wallets 
and possibly they also know how to run a node. Yeah, people learn about these things. That's definitely true. I did learn a lot also through this way. And, and it, can, it can be a good gateway drug, of course. I, I will agree with that. But in the end, it kind of depends on the person if he goes beyond his own selfish greed to learn more about it. And that's kind of what kind of makes or breaks the whole thing for him. It kind of makes it more like, you know, like if he's going to lose millions on this at some point in his life, or if he's going to be, you know, survive the next hyperinflationary crisis that we're going to face. And, and this is interesting, but I, I don't really think, maybe, maybe I do, but it's, it's a, like, you know, it's, it's hard for the average Joe to, you know, to get right away into the deep water, you know, just jump in. If you know, if you stop, if you buy Bitcoin, if you've never heard about it, you just keep it in an exchange. And even a couple of weeks ago, I had a friend who'd been into crypto ever since the 2017 bull run. He, he just now bought himself a, a hardware wallet to keep his crypto secure. <laughs> and it just, it just, I was asking, like, you never really thought about these things to buy a hardware wallet or something? And he said, no. And he's only started, you know, looking into it. And he needed to that little push to, you know, to get into this thing. And yeah, but you have to realize that we are having a very elitist perspective on it. And most people don't really have the time to do as much research as we did. So in, in a sense, this is a luxury that we get to learn about how Bitcoin functions on so many dimensions. Most people will just buy $100 worth of Bitcoin, leave it on Coinbase and forget about it. Maybe sell it when it goes up in price and that's about it. Yeah, the and barriers are already in place. That's yeah. what I'm going to say. People are, are just going to live their lives and be ignorant of what goes on around them in finance and politics and everything else. But we have to make sure as long as we are more educated that we preserve this system and keep it fair as opposed to trying to change the consensus rules and screw yeah. over everybody else yeah so it, it's yeah people definitely have barriers for entry like how they keep you know uh, the secret key uh, safe and then you know when they start you know realizing that there's a lot more things they can do to keep it secure like like passphrases or multi-signature wallets they they just get really entangled with all the information and it's just overwhelming for them even for me in the beginning it was really overwhelming but the uh, it is true. We are also, you know, have the luxury, to, you know, to think about this. We're like time billionaires here, who are who are able to, you know, set aside some capacity of our time, of our brain and time, to, you know, think about this thing constantly. And this kind of gives us the advantage also. So, like, but you know, this this is why, you know, for example, somebody who's financially struggling, uh, whether in America or hunger, whatever else. Uh, they're they going to have a really hard time, you know, thinking about these things because you have to worry about other things like how they're going to earn money, how they're going to feed their children or family or whatever else. It just, you know, once you get out of the environment, you know, the study or whatever, if you're not in such situation that you're able to think, like if you're at home all the time being depressed and you're unable to go anywhere, then maybe that, that can be kind of a good time to start thinking about these things. And, and usually kind of leads to good good, good result also what I consider, but it's just interesting. Like, 
it's 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 hard to it's hard to say if somebody would have the time really to to think about this if they're living good if they don't have anything threatening their lives, like like one of my lecture is, is how she would say it, but it's it's not possible to say if it's true. One of the discussions that I have had on this podcast before is that nobody really wakes up in the morning one day and realizes that the dollars in their pocket are not good enough and they need sound money in their lives. Oh, oh, this is really interesting. Yes, yes. And actually, I had the downing of this moment about this thing that, you know, how perceptivized is the value of fiat currencies is. I'm not sure if you ever heard about like what's going on in Hungary with the paper money. Basically, the, the Hungarian central bank started issuing new, uh, uh, basically brand new paper money. So they are look totally different. And the whole point of that is that, that they are still running with the old money in place. And, and people are trying to exit the old money. <laughs> But even though the old, old type of currency is still in circulation for indefinite time until it gets announced. And they're just trying to get the new one because they think that, that it's going to turn useless for them. And that's fun. You know, when I went into the post office and I received multiple of those old bills and one in between them, I, you know, just kind of immediately got shocked that this is actually true, that it can happen, that, that human perception is enough to create a massive hyperinflation because there's no, nothing behind the money that's backing its value. The government just printing it out endlessly. And in the end, when, you know, people start realizing that there is nothing behind basically, absolutely nothing, they just, you know, they're just going to start demanding more and more to buy more of Bitcoin or something different. And that's going to be the end of it. And this is scary, basically, because I have a theory for that, that, that this thing could happen within six years now if, if uh, hyper-Bitcoinization starts happening much more sooner than it is. So that's what I'm taking. Like, well, we could somehow, you know, slow this, bit, slow this down a tiny bit or follow the, the stock-to-flow ratio somehow without inducing in a hyperinflation effect, then we would have a much more safer transition than, you know, next day having uh, to pay, like just one day having to pay before like one euro for bread, next day have to pay like a million because that, that would cause a massive disruption for society on the long run. And we wouldn't get out of it in just four or five years time only. So people would have to buy, like have to, have to rely on government uh, food stamps or whatever, Or food. So it's quite scary in, in, in some perspective. Would you say that you have always had this predisposition to like libertarianism and the reason you got into Bitcoin is that you didn't like the government? Uh, I used to be a centrist because I twice voted for the, for the ruling government, but then I kind of felt like that they betrayed my trust. And then I kind of had this, this crisis that, you know, I was more, more left-leaning than centrist. And I, you know, I just didn't feel like that these things were right, they, what they were doing. But at the same time, I didn't really like the, what was going on with the migration crisis. I didn't like something that also the other side was saying. And also the, the parties that basically abused their power in the past were still running for political, political office. So they kind of conflicted with the whole thing. And I kind of ended up in this whole thing that I don't have a political party that I can rely on. I don't know how, who I want to trust. I mean, who, who I can trust and in what ways. And then I kind of 
realized after you know with the whole bitcoin thing that that, that this is actually a lot better with, with, with the terrorism and i i know i'm kind of fully transitioning there but it's a really really long process you know <laughs> it's like there's another guy on twitter called is is recovering status so i'm kind of kind of doing the same thing <laughs> right now well, I think I still regard myself as a centrist when I listen to political issues, as I can sympathize with all points of view and understand that it's not easy to get involved into politics and please all, all the people who essentially entrust you with their vote. But at the same time, I've become much more of an anarchist in relation to policies. And I think that sometimes it's required in a democracy to have a shakeup of the system just so you discover what works and what doesn't? Yeah, I mean, uh, there was this guy called Zizek who was also talking about this in relation to Donald Trump. He was, uh, he's, a, he's a, I think he's a Slovenian philosopher, a Marxist philosopher, who was basically saying that the thing, this, this thing with Donald Trump is a really great thing that he happened because he's not going to destroy everything. And then, you know, the new thing that comes in his place is going to be much better. That's, that's the thing what I agree with Bitcoin because it's, it's doing the same thing what he was referring to. It's destroying everything that we see now. But it's not really destroying everything. The system that, it, that, is, that is predecessor is destroying itself and that's how Bitcoin have the space to grow. And it's, it's just really great that it, it is able to do that quite so organically. Yeah, I think Bitcoin is a very strange phenomenon that you only find maybe once in a generation, once in a few hundred, hundreds of years. It came at the exact right time when it was needed. Basically, I think even now people have struggles in terms of understanding its purpose and how it actually works. And if you put an economist and a computer scientist in the same room and tell them to interpret the purpose of Bitcoin, they're going to see something very different, which I guess yeah. is part of the charm of the phenomenon. I mean, but people it, have their own experience. Right time, it has all the qualities that we need at this point in order to basically rebel against our governments. We, we tell them very directly that we're not going to use their money anymore. We're not going to store value with them. We're not going yeah. to transact all the time with whatever inflated currency they give us. And at some point, I don't think either Bitcoin or the fiat currencies are going to go away, but we are going to be put into a situation where the governments come to us and negotiate and oh yeah definitely, definitely. And give back to us in order to win honest citizens who contribute to the society as they expect and in exchange for this they're going to have much they they're going to become much more transparent and much more honest and i guess this empowers us to not rely on the old system of elites and I'm not sure to which extent the old elites are investing into Bitcoin. That's always something obscure and it's part it's of the up. mystery. I mean, Bitcoin does punish the greedy. That, that's a fact. So there is a, a value transition from the rich to the, the middle and lower classes. 
which is a really good thing. And this is the whole thing with volunteerism that, you know, that now government's going to have to start focusing more on being for profit, that they somehow need to make money while still allowing others to make money because the transformational value is already happening right now. And because now people know that how they can, you know, avoid inflation, they, they are much more reluctant to fund such government projects that are not useful for them. You know, humans always look for, for, for useful tools, like the, their maximum utility the creatures, basically, who seek maximum utility in things. And then, you know, governments can start bringing programs, for example, like investment opportunities, for example. They, if people want to invest, for example, in hospitals or other services, for example, they could basically invest into them and earn back the money that they invested probably over time. And then, you know, this kind of, you know, makes the whole system better because now we don't have to rely on the ultra rich or oligarchies to, you know, run projects or build things or this and that. And this is really great. And now, you know, with, with the whole crypto space and with Bitcoin, people now learning about how do you, how the digital trading working, how stocks are working, how cryptocurrencies working and things like that. They're learning more about, you know, how the whole trade thing is working. Because up until 2017, I, ne- I never knew anything about how a Vecti signal works or RSI signal, what the hell that is. And, and I totally learned these things and I started, you know, exploring these things also. So this is quite phenomenal that now, uh, those people who weren't in, in this space now learning about all these kinds of things. And, and if we try to, you know, uh, relate it to the future or make a prediction, we can see that maybe we're going to have a much more greater uh, technological development or, or economic boom in the future because of this. I think given that you've mentioned that you have or you used to have at least more leftist tendencies you you've reminded me of a saying according to which the more you the more economy you learn the less of a leftist you become as, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you, you acquire the means to both make yourself richer and help others so okay. you you no longer think that the state should intervene and overtax and punish the rich you're basically thinking in terms of redistributing the wealth with means that are within your grasp basically but there is a problem here that you need to also consider uh the problem here is that you know is it is our inherent culture and our experiences with our reality because for example how company structures work in France are basically dictated by the state. People more uh, more eager to seek bureaucratic roles there, like to become a governor or something like to, to become like a big leader of a company or something. Then they, and then, you know, have the, the social capital to start big companies or something. That's much more lower there. More in, in comparison to like Northern Italy, where there are more companies than comparison to Southern Italy, for example, where, uh, for example, uh, religion was used as a tool to enforce the rule of the king. So people were much more content and they looked towards the government, for example, to start companies. And they're more, for example, rich people wouldn't really think that they need to, to invest into things because they consider that, that it's the government's job to invest into things, not their job uh, to keep things going. And this is kind of comes back down to cultural experiences, basically. It's quite interesting. But Hungary has had a very long and ugly history with communism. Yeah. Confiscation of wealth and 
forced labor and a very strange centralization which replaced the old system of elites and replaced it with maybe what they were calling working class people who were uneducated and unprepared to actually be in government. Yeah, this is a big problem because um, it kind of, you know, transformed people's thinking. And even today we see the fallout of it. Those who are still here are kind of impeding on this problem. I mean, impeding on our rights, our freedoms, and they just kind of bogging down the system basically. And it's a problem because it's really hard to change their, their attitudes. Also, for example, like in Russia, for example, older people don't really like the fact that they're younger, that the younger generation speaks so freely. Because, you know, if they would have speak that freely in, in Soviet times, they would have been taken away after the gulags and, and their life ruined and their families. But now it's much more different. So we still need some time to, you know, get through this and see a total change in generation. But also Bitcoin as money is a form of speech. It's an expression because where you spend your money and with whom you're transacting is the same as with whom you're having conversations and what kind of topics you prefer. And the fact that we are able to communicate with each other financially without any kind of central party which censors us or central party to confiscate whichever wealth they consider to be, you know, stolen or not being sent according to the rules. Well, we're not in that system anymore. And it's wonderful that we get to understand money from this perspective of a fundamental human right. And then we we, we privacy. It, it is beautiful. The police can no longer take your money out of your car in the U.S. because now the secret code is in your ba- brain or on your cell phone and they don't see the physical cash. <laughs> so it gave a tremendous amount of freedom for us, yes. There now, is basically, no way for them to know how much you own. And yeah. also you it's, can it's cross wonderful. borders. You can run away from your country with nothing but 12 words in your mind or on a piece of paper. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm convinced that, that it, I think it was the Bitcoin Improvement Protocol 39 that brought in the, the memory phases, right? That uh, kind of made this possible to, you know, to kind of translate the private key into more memorizable words, like 12 or 24. And then the best part is that you can also put a fast phrase onto this. So if you, you, you kind of, you know, decentralize your storage and you still remember the fast phrase, you are in full control of your money. Nobody can steal it, not even the, co- the government, not even a law can enforce beyond you. And, and this is scary at some point, but it's really liberating because now your, 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 your ex-husband cannot steal your, 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 your fortunes or, or your, your rogue wife is, is not going to be gold digging anymore. <laughs> so it's, it's quite good. This is, this is really liberating and I really like that, yeah. But then it kind of brings up the whole thing that now taxation is going to be impossible. The things we have right now is going to collapse. It's going to be really hard to upkeep things like, like for example, welfare states, like, like the education system, the healthcare system, whatever else, like public services, hospitals, not even security services going to be properly operating, in my opinion, unless we do something about it. So that's a, that's a true danger there. 
and also crime might start rising even more when there is hyperbitcoinization. Well, the way I think about it from a voluntarist perspective is that we as individuals who make money and acquire value are more likely to give money to something on which we agree. So if somebody showed up at our door and said, how about you give some money for the local hospital or for the school in your neighborhood, you, you understand why it's important for it to continue operating and you're going to give money. But taxation yeah. as a form of taking wealth exists so they can put in place practices and policies on which you would not agree. They yeah. fund worse, they fund secret services, they increase the payments of politicians and their drivers and they or build stadiums basically. <laughs> exactly. They build stadiums and they do lots of stuff to which you would never agree to do. But yeah, also you have no work to say except for when you go to vote and even then it's not much of a choice because you choose between predetermined yeah. options. And you don't get to vote for somebody whom you consider to be honest. Yeah, like this is the point what I was actually, you know, kind of trying to explore a while back that, you know, like how voluntary <clears throat> funding of institutions could work. I mean, we already have a have a some fear, some working technology with smart contracts. It's just a matter of time to create another layer on, on the Bitcoin protocol and, and, you know, create some sort of a uh, a safe uh, smart contract system that allows us, for example, to fund hospitals, for example, in a country. So if people, for example, want to fund a national health service, then basically they can just contribute into that fund. And then those funds basically are possible to track and see where it is going, how it is spent, but not very, but just, you know, not sure like it's, it's how dangerous it would be if it would be possible to verify who paid in what way. Because I thought like some sort of a zero knowledge proof could be used in these systems that are that are not entirely leading back to the same person, but able to verify that he was actually paying that amount of money could be really useful. So basically, it's really good because if you like, if you're not paying, for example, your contributions, if you get into hospital, you could be forced to you know pay more for your for the service there. But if you're paying your contributions, you you would be given a, a bigger discount, for example, for for play for 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 you know. Uh, supporting society and keeping up these institutions, for example. But that's quite good, in my opinion. If it could happen, it would be a really good way to fix these problems. I, I imagine in the future that the state will also do multi-sig contracts on the Bitcoin blockchain. So they will oh, hold one part of the private key and maybe somebody in your family will hold, let's say, in a two out of three structure. We're going to I mean, hold one part. Family. Another member of the family will hold the other part, and then the government will want to hold a third part. And the money. So you mean like, like, like a like a multi-sig that is visible to the government, like a ID system that is tied to a wallet? You mean? Yeah, something like that. Oh, that's it's so that's 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 a really crazy idea that I don't really think uh, just kind of goes against all all ideas of freedom because then just the government needs to get get one uh, private key and they could you know basically enforce any rules or i mean any laws or regulations on you if you're mis being mischievous and i don't really think that's such a great idea but i mean it could still happen probably so 
I'm not say, saying it's a great idea. I'm saying that at some point, I think they will try to do it. To they will definitely do it, yes. <laughs> allow you to give them one shard of your private key. And then I guess there's nothing that they can do without another party who is involved. So they have to persuade or push or punish somebody else to give up on their part of the private key in order for them to collect funds. Yeah, this is an interesting thing too, that how, what, what they're going to be doing if they cannot pursue, you know, uh, punishments, they, when they're trying to impose fines or something, what they're going to be preferring more. Are they going to be using sanctions or putting people into jail or something? I, I'm not really sure what's, what's more probable here. I was thinking about it right now in terms of sanctions. Yeah, like, for example, like you if, just think in terms like how the Chinese are running the social credit system, which is a massive bullshit that like, like if you do something wrong, they offer your social credit, but then you cannot use the buses or the trains anywhere. You cannot leave the city. You have to go on foot. You cannot even use a taxi or buy things in the shop. And then you need to start working for a better, higher social credit. <laughs> it's just crazy. But something like this could happen in case of crimes, like, like really bad crimes that, that this could be applied, but not onto people. Like people's freedom shouldn't be impeded like this, but more like people who really did some sort of a crime. Like for example, those who basically collapsed the, the financial system in 2008. There there's never been sanctions before. Only one guy was, was sentenced and everybody else got off with the, the slap on the wrist. So that's quite, quite an injustice there. It is. And to this day, it's not like we have had a solution or any kind of sense no of... No, they all resolution for the problem. It's not like we feel like we have had our part of revenge on the bankers who basically screwed our lives. And our generation is basically educated on the foundation of that financial crisis. We saw how our parents were getting poorer, how some of our parents were losing jobs. We were seeing people talk about the financial crisis all the time. It was hard for us, especially as Central and Eastern Europeans, to understand what happened on the other side of the Atlantic. And the next financial crisis is going to be much more devastating because more than 50% of the world's capital markets are in the United States. And companies like Apple, Microsoft, Google, they own most of the stock market capital. So if their stock market collapses, we're screwed globally. Completely. Yeah, this is a big problem. Also, since uh, things like automize, autom- like, you know, like AI is coming in and automization of jobs also coming in with, with robotics and things. So people going to be more people going to be losing jobs. No, and I don't this, think so, really. You don't I, think I, so? Jobs will be replaced, but not, you know, some of them will become obsolete and replaced by robots, but you're going to need more people to supervise how the artificial intelligence works. Your yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. You, know, like you have to retrain those who will lose the jobs because, you know, without that, you won't be able to have this functional. But then there's, there's this, this, this small amount of people also who are having a really hard time, you know, being retrained. And these are usually from the unskilled workers. 
who who it's really really hard to like like repurpose their jobs because for example like in germany where there's like life contracts and things like that they're able to you know or or in japan for example but not not fully they're not really doing that but where you can you know retrain the workforce to do different type of uh, of uh roles in the factory for example where a company would invest rather in their employees than than lose them who are more you know more loyal or or something so i mean we do have the danger and i i I probably gonna disagree here with you but i think we can do this with with uh, with retraining of the workforce to fix all the problems but it's gonna be a really hard one i i think i've heard naval ravikant talk about this topic on Joe Rogan's podcast. And I agree with him that there is one kind of tasks that artificial intelligence will never be able to accomplish. And that is the creative parts. So you're not going to have artificial intelligence, robots and algorithms produce music that we as humans enjoy or poetry or any kind of artistic expression that we can only create because we have feelings and emotions and different states of mind. Just because we're not machines and we're not constant in our way of operating makes us determined and... um, I, I don't know what the adjective is, but makes us willing and capable of producing art. And that's something special which tells us apart from machines. And that's something that we need as a society to function. Maybe that in the future, you're going to have machines which do the hard work and we are going to write novels, we're going to write music and do paintings and have much different activities. Or do coding, that's quite good also. I mean, oh yeah, that's that the programming is going to be really necessary in the future. Without that, you're not going to be probably getting really far away. I already started learning Python also, which is pretty good programming language, but everybody hates it from my friends. Uh, Python? Yeah, Python. Everybody, every, all of my friends hate it. So uh, probably just an outlier doing something stupid, but I think it's a good one. <laughs> I don't know, also because I mean, most of the Bitcoin stuff is running on Python and applications. Like, it's quite fascinating for me, at least. At least if I could, you know, do something more useful than right now. At least with programming, I'm really satisfied. (laughs) Well, I guess it's a more difficult language to learn at first. Usually you start with C++ or something. I remember that's what I did in my high school days. And it's interesting that I have a high school degree in computer science and actually passed an exam which gave me a certificate to work as a computer operator but then I went to university and did political science and I went from hard sciences to social sciences oh yeah (laughs) quite interesting turn there yeah but I I, guess I wasn't very good at it I'm not good at math and I wasn't being very efficient at creating code so in my yeah. mind, if you made me create some kind of instruction, I would think it in terms of repeating lines of code, whereas others would find something like a loop to generate the whole sequence, which escaped my mind. I wasn't capable of conceiving. 
So I, I'm not an efficient coder, or maybe if I try it again, I would become one. I don't know. But I know that I'm much better in expressing words than in writing code. And I don't know, maybe there is room for everybody in this world to work and be as good as they can be at something. More than likely, just need to you know, create opportunities for people. That's the hard part. You, know, you need to have the capital and then be able to pay them and produce something that, that kind of sustainable in the long run. Just gets more hard all the time. Yeah, but coming back to Bitcoin, do you see anything changing in the future in Hungary in regards to it? And maybe if your government decided to ban it completely and do it like in India, where they say oh, yeah, that, definitely. would you be willing to leave the country because of that? Yes. I wouldn't, I, I already worked out a plan for this because <laughs> I do consider that Hungary is going to be among the first countries to, to ban cryptocurrencies after, probably after it reaches like $250,000 so, or, or a million dollars. I'm not really sure when, but it's highly likely that it will happen within seven years. So uh, I think this is a danger for people who are getting into it, but I can also see that, that, that the next wave of adoption will probably create, will bring up the amount of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin users to a number of like one million or over a million people in Hungary who will be actively using it and trading with it and buying stuff with it. And, and the government will definitely notice this because right now there's only about 140,000 people probably hiding. Because I have this really interesting story I had once I was coming home from, 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 from Budapest and I was in the intercity and with another woman. And basically we, I, was, uh, uh, I was talking with the woman because she has some issues because didn't understand how the train is going these days. But then... I kind of told her and then I started talking to her about Bitcoin. And then when I got to the part about, you know, uh, how the, how, what kind of generations are using these, like, you know, the younger generations are 20s, 24, 28 are using these things. The guy sitting in the, in the cabin on the other side, uh, who was around 65, he said he's, he's six, uh, it was 65 actually, that he's 65 years old and in 2017 he bought like 10 bitcoins. And then the whole theory of mine kind of collapsed because he was 65 years old and he owned 10 bitcoins and he said he's not planning to sell for a really long time. So this is very interesting. So there must be like a lot of people in Hungary who also owns bitcoin and we don't really know about these people. So <laughs> it's interesting. I have a theory that there are a lot of people who get into Bitcoin because they need it, not because they want to speculate financially, but because they want to store their value in a way that cannot be inflated and devalued by their governments. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I exited all the, the hunger for inside, actually. So I'm not saying I, I don't own that much. I, I don't consider myself like anything near that, but since I'm, I'm still in the lower middle class, but I just you know, tr was thinking more like, you know, like being able to you know, avoid the hyperinflation that actually happens. So for me, it was like logical to keep things in Bitcoin, for example. So it's, it's quite good in that sense to, you know, to be safe because you know, people who don't really think about these things, they're gonna be you know, running out of options. 
and even last November, when the price you know crashed like three thousand, uh, like two thousand eight hundred euros, basically, that, that's what I was considering as the last option to for people to you know to gain like a whole Bitcoin, because people at this, I, I, I'm just kind of like thinking here that a lot of people bought Bitcoin at the time on credit, and that's how you know credit started rolling into Bitcoin again, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Yeah, but usually that's not how it works. If you talk about the masses and the people who get excited in order to speculate on the price, the FOMO only happens when the press coverage starts to emerge. And they're yeah, not going to be around 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're going to publish news articles on every newspaper. And usually, for the people who have been around for a long time, that that's a sell signal. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, like uh, like my seasonal friends, they're very interesting. They actually come out all the time when when things start getting better and then things start going up. This is exactly happening like that right now. They just, I I, I do think that a lot of people knows about Bitcoin because uh, I was in Croatia on Zcon, Zcon 1 and, and basically I asked all the waitresses why I was interacting and if they heard about Bitcoin. And all of them heard about it. This was really crazy. And I don't know if that is a good research area for, for making a, such an assumption, but implying that most people are able to speak English. I mean, not, not a lot of people because I see somebody who cannot, but, but uh, Basically, I'm thinking that implying here instead that they probably heard about it in some form or shape and, and they've been exposed to the news about it. So this is really interesting. Yeah, Croatia, I guess, is a very educated and wealthy country with very nice views and beaches and... Oh, it's really nice. <laughs> it's a paradise. But on terms, they're not any better off economically. Maybe they have a really great tourism there going on, but I wouldn't consider them much more better off than what, where Hungary is. They probably have more, more trade going on because they have more access to ports and such. But in some sense, if you look at, for example, the minimum wage in Croatia, you can only see that, for example, like, like they have only have uh, 100 euro more in average wage in Kuna, for example, than, uh, than for example, what Hungarians get. So something that's usually... Which, yes? Something which I have learned from the experience of being a Romanian is that the wealth of a country is not determined by the resources or by the amount of trade but also by the geopolitical positioning. Yeah, yeah, As definitely. In Romania, we are very close to Russia and we have a long history of being in diplomatic tensions with the Russians. <laughs> yeah. And we are, you know, if they wanted to conquer us, they could do it maybe in five or six hours and it wouldn't be much of an effort for them. And in order for us to preserve our national security, we have to become allies with the United States. And the United States is going to want us to give them lots of resources and access to a lot of stuff and allow companies to enter our country and have special tax facilities. So we are going to be impoverished by our search for 
national security and independence of a, as a country. Even though we have we have gold mines, we have very very rich woods, which Canadian and American companies are cutting down these days. And it just makes you wonder. It makes you think, okay, we we pay a very high price for our security and for our are we, yeah, yeah, are we being exploited for it? Yeah, or not? Or if, if the even security in this alliance is worth more than having a threat of a Russian invasion, like what happened to Ukraine or or Georgia? This is a very good question because neither Georgia nor Ukraine had the protections of NATO. And look what happened to them. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And like how countries are being abused, for example, in Africa by, by China. When Chinese companies move into, into South Africa or other countries. And then instead of hiring local empl- employees, they bring Chinese workers with them. <laughs> That's very common. Also, when the United States sends humanitarian aid to other countries, they use American ships. They buy products from American companies. And they make sure that the money pours back into their economy one way or the other. So it's a protectionist measure which supports your economy and that makes a lot of sense. But anyway, one last point that I want to make in this podcast that we're doing is that sometimes I think that Bitcoin undermines the power of the United States in the world. And it makes me wonder sometimes, I say to myself, Am I really helping Russia or China rise to power? Because <laughs> obviously Bitcoin is not a mean which helps the American government. It definitely undermines everything, but at the same time it's not good for everybody else. I do have theories like how dictatorships could operate under a Bitcoin system. But one interesting thing that one of my friends basically had is that he said that he had a theory that, that the CIA created Bitcoin because he thought that only the CIA could have like this, this insane capabilities to figure out a complex system like this. And, and he thought that maybe they wanted to use it to, to undermine a country or somebody. And then this kind of went loose and they couldn't control it anymore. <laughs> Just quite crazy, right? I don't know, basically. I, I, I don't really think so that this is the case. But it could be. I don't know. It's, it's, it's more than likely that Satoshi still lives somewhere and he will probably listen to this podcast also. And he's still helping, you know, develop Bitcoin. I, I mean, he, he probably can't be that crazy to quit it. And he's probably way too addicted also to, to just quit it like that. But, hi, Satoshi, yeah, if you're listening. Hi, this. Satoshi. We love you. So, okay, so, so like, uh, it does undermine the power of the United States, as has Bill Sherman, so like Bitcoin showman <laughs> said that <laughs> on that video, that every, every transaction, based international transaction, even credit and debit card transactions sometimes get right through the United States and the New York Fed, which is really interesting. Like, like you know, like the, the international trade goes through the dollar to buy oil and, and whatever else. And, and, you know, if you give power back into the hands of the people, you remove the power from the hands of dirty politicians in, in, in DC. And 
and they won't like that. They're probably going to try to do something against it. They're going to try probably dilute this. Probably, probably Facebook's Libra is, is a dilution right now. I'm not really sure. Or just Zuckerberg is, you know, trying to be really, really power hungry. I'm not sure. But, but it, is, it is, is true. But, you know, when people are going to figure out how to use the system for properly and correctly, uh, all authoritarian governments are going to collapse, basically. This is like a vaccine against totalitarianism, as, as, as Taleb said it, as the preface of, of the Bitcoin standard, that, bit, that Bitcoin is basically uh, an insurance policy against an Orwellian future. And this is totally true. I think Bitcoin is much more American than the United States right now. And when I say American, I mean, according to the principles of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and their political thoughts as founding fathers of the United States. Yeah, but this doesn't explain the fact that, that there are more European nodes running, that, 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 that there are more nodes in the European Union and in Europe than in the United States. Because now it appears that, that the European adoption process somehow eclipsed that of the American. So somehow we adopted this, we're able to better adopt this mentality and ideology probably than the Americans are able to. Now, because they still uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but I guess we get better education in Europe. Yeah, probably. That, that's probably true. It's mostly free here. So, and it's, yeah, I agree with that. Yes, yes. Probably people get pissed on it, but yes, it's, it's even my education, for example, the master's student is completely free. And, I, and I'm basically just abusing this course to, to, to research Bitcoin because I know this is so important topic, but nobody's researching it. Somebody has to work on it in the end. If I won't work on it, who is going to work on it? Nobody else. I, I'm doing the same with my PhD and my supervisor doesn't like it. And I try to sugarcoat it with what he gives me and try to mix it with <laughs> Bitcoin stuff. Yeah. yeah, I always get asked, even inside there, how does this get connected to my, my, my course? And I'm starting to think that the time is going to come when they figure out all this, this, this thing. And it's, it's just going to be way too late by then. It's just going to be like Bitcoin. It's going too big, too big and it's aiming for the moon now. And they can't do anything. They can't shut it down. They can't do anything about it. And it's just going to happen. So basically that. Yeah, it's crazy. By the time they figure it out, I guess, I will not be as interested to write the same thesis and I will not be having the same time and energy to waste on it. Yeah. But maybe somebody else will do a better job than I ever will. Probably. But you can, but you can always use your work as a basis to improve upon it, which is really important. Because, you know, if you wouldn't write it, or I wouldn't write this, this thesis or dissertation, then then nobody, the other people would have a much more harder time getting started and having the, the sound basis for their own research. And that's a big problem because, you know, then just we get stuck in this whole thing. And then, you know, when the problems start happening, people won't have time to research the meaning of the system or the things that, why it's, why it's happening. And then they're going to have to start focusing on other problems and they probably going to get diluted with the problems then, then focusing the entire system itself and some inner meanings of it. So which is quite a danger here. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And the way you know that this is part of the early days of the phenomenon is that when you look at research papers written by cryptographers and developers in the space, you're going to see how the references actually quote discussions on the Bitcoin Talk Forum. Yeah. And that's incredible. That's not academic in any sense, but it's much more educated that, than any paper <clears throat> in the field. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes, there's basically no research being done on this. Not even for me, for example, sociological research is absolutely none. I, I I can't use anything good. I need to you know look into everything and then you know use the the fragments that I can find, the breadcrumbs that I can you know puzzle together as an underlying basis for my work. It's it's quite difficult. Okay, so Caro Zagoras. How can people find you on Twitter and maybe inquire about your thesis or talk to you as a fellow Bitcoin pleb? Uh, basically, they can hit me up on the Bitcoin pleb chat on Telegram or look me up at, at Karazagoras on Twitter. So that's, that's uh, I, uh, K-R-O-Z-O-R. K-A-R-O-Z-O-R-U-S. <laughs> I always get messed up with this thing. It's like, yeah, basically. So they can hit me up. I have my DMs open. And just feel free to message me if anybody wants to ask anything about it. I'm quite approachable, so we will quite figure it out. So yeah, it was really great to talk with you, man. Likewise. Hope we'll talk again. Thank you very much. Bye. See you.